Shalom and welcome everyone to the Unexpected Cosmology. A few days ago, I took my sons to see the new Ghostbusters Afterlife movie. It should be noted that I haven't actually entered a movie theater in a few years. For whatever reason, I made an exception for this one. A defining difference between the media and Hollywood is that the media lies to you while selling it as true, whereas Hollywood feeds truths while claiming it as fiction. Personally, I cannot bring myself to watch the fear-based mind control as brought forth by the media. However, the predictive programming and esoteric realities brought forward in Hollywood has my interest, and Ghostbusters is no exception. The narrative seems to play out as if it's coming directly from the Testament of Solomon. If you're familiar with that book, and I actually haven't read it yet here on this uh, channel, I don't know if I will, Solomon is capable of conjuring or materializing spirits by the power given to him by Elohim. He then binds or traps them. The rather disturbing conclusion is that the evil Ruachs have their way and he eventually begins to worship them, and thus begins the very dark life of Solomon. They come in all different varieties too, like the Ghostbusters movie. One will look like a dragon, another like a hybrid creature, another like a devil, another, say, without a head, yet another like a natural woman, and then another resembling something like a snail. Anyhow, going into it, the movie that is, one of the discussion points I brought up with my sons is how The Ghost in Ghostbusters is a cookie-cutter title. If you pay attention, there's multiple different types of entities involved. There's the spirits of dead souls, but also demons, fallen angels, and gods. Recall, if you can, the original Ghostbusters plotline. A long-dead architect has constructed a building for the exclusive but secret worship of an ancient Sumerian god named Gozer. That's a mouthful right there. Of course, sex magic is involved, which serves to unlock a portal and materialize Gozer, ultimately in the form of the stay-puffed marshmallow man. Fast forward to the latest movie, Ghostbusters Afterlife, a direct sequel to the original. This time, we come to learn that the long-dead architect also built an entire town in the Midwest. The library, the post office, the police station, he built all of it. It's heavily insinuated that many people were in on it. And if I'm not mistaken, I saw a Freemason lodge included at one point in the movie. I could be wrong about that. You know, everything was moving by so quickly. But I, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I saw the, uh, the, the square in the compass. There's some really interesting ideas that the filmmakers were putting forward. One, that the so-called Midwest town was far older than the official narrative called for, which, by the way, was only 100 years old. And secondly, that some sort of Canaanite or Mesopotamian society had pre-existed there, as shown by the underground ruins, which was masked as an abandoned mineshaft. Forgive me for giving this away, but Gozer once again materializes in this film. Here's the plot point, though, that I had somehow forgotten about the first film. Gozer was neither female nor dude. We are told the person who plays Gozer in both movies was a female actress, or rather, two different female actresses. And yet, in a true David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust fashion, Gozer is androgynous. In fact, upon learning that Gozer is androgynous, one of the female teenagers, she's a member of the new generation of, generation of Ghostbusters, she quips, 
Who knew 2000 BC was so forward? If you recall, that's a Hillary Clinton term, forward thinking. At least, that's what I think she said. I'm not paying admission again to go back in and and listen, just to be certain. What I do recall is sitting there and hearing her say something along the lines of an androgynous god from 2000 BC being forward-thinking, politically speaking, and going, exactly, because that's what the intel community is pushing on everybody today. In both exoteric and esoteric terms, we are expected to mimic the pagan gods. Academia and the media tells us the gods are a figment of our imagination, while Hollywood reminds us of their reality. One of the reasons that I will refer to Yahuwah as Elohim rather than God is for a few different reasons. One is that God is the Freemasons' telling of him, in my opinion. But secondly, God is the actual name of an ancient Babylonian deity. And Satan is always trying to trip us up. So we read concerning God, God was the name of the pan-Semitic God of fortune, usually depicted as a male, but sometimes as a female, and is attested in ancient records of Aram and Arabia. God is also mentioned in the Bible, well, isn't that ironic, <laughs> as a deity in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 65, 11, uh, some translations simply call him the God of fortune, well, that's interesting, as having been worshipped by a number of Hebrews during the Babylonian captivity. It's almost humorous, but not funny at all, how Christians go around saying Allah of Islam is a pagan deity, but they have no problem telling you about God. The fact that God is printed on our money, or that he's depicted as the all-seeing eye, doesn't even bat an eye. So much cognitive dissonance. If you were paying attention, the God on your money just so happens to be a Babylonian Elohim of fortune. The prophet Yeshayahu has the Hebrews worshiping God. Has anything really changed today? I think not. Also, like Gozer and Ghostbusters, God is androgynous. These are the sort of discussions I've had with my sons this week, letting them know about the spiritual reality of this world and how we are not to confuse Yahuwah the Most High with the Elohim of the pagan nations. The paper that I will be reading from tonight derives from my book, The Hidden Hand of Camelot, which is published with Sacred Word Publishing. It involves Marilyn Monroe and androgyny. Actually, it's the very first chapter. People open it up and don't have a clue what they're getting into, I guess. But that should probably be a given with any of my work. I brought up Ghostbusters for a very specific reason. Consider what's happening with the sex magic, the man and woman coming together, and what it is that they're materializing. The purpose of the gods in the mystery religion is, or the mystery religions across the board, is ultimately to guide us to the divine within. That's what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is all about, the counterfeit knockoff of the tree of life. Androgyny is ultimately declaring that the divine within, by uh, by reuniting what Yahuwah, the Elohim of Scripture, separated at creation. And, you know, it's the man and the woman becoming one. So, with that, I'm going to um, open this up. I recommend, I put the PDF in here, I do recommend, if you don't as a habit, I recommend reading through it with me tonight, because it has all sorts of really neat pictures in it. All right, so let's get started. This is called The Man in Marilyn Monroe by yours truly, Noel Joshua Hadley.
Noel, before we get started, a quick question. Yes. Um, are, are you purporting that 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 man man as in mankind was created androgynous and that because you said he's separated no i'm not and i'm going to actually talk about that in here um the idea is that uh yahua throughout uh gnosticism and the occult is treated as the demiurge all right like the demiurge of platonism and uh, Lucifer is often seen as, you know, the enlightened one, right? Or Satan is, you know, as Lucifer, the enlightened one. And so, um, if you actually look at the, um, I might have this in here. It's actually been a few months since I've looked this paper over. But uh, if you look at pictures of uh, uh, Beelzebub, uh, the statue that they have, I think they, it was in Boston for a while or, or Salem or wherever. I'm not sure where it is now. He actually has boobs. All right. So just try to understand what he's esoterically saying there, uh, that Satan is androgynous and he's trying to, the, what is the esoteric value of that? So no, I am not saying that Adam was originally androgynous, but I'm trying to give the explanation of what is purported. Just so everybody knows, I do not believe, nor do, am I advocating that Adam is or was at any given time androgynous. Um, but I am, however, touching on the, the reality that uh, Yahuwah is perceived as the demirish who came in and corrupted creation rather than creating it, and that he separated Adam and Hava, um, and that there is a... Um, one of the things I'll touch on here, see, I'm kind of giving it away now, but uh, we see right now before us, all across the world, be people being created in the image of the beast, right now? Well, that's what androgyny is. It's being refitted or formed into the image of the beast, into the image of Satan. All right. So, all right. All right. Getting back to page one, we see a, a picture of Miss Monroe there. Uh, or as uh, Roger Ebert once said that she only had, uh, the late Roger Ebert said that back in the 50s, she only had one name, and that was Marilyn Monroe. There wasn't two names. And I have some uh, some lovely lyrics here by Frank Sinatra. Old Jack Magic had them in its spell. That old Jack Magic that he weaves so well. And he actually sang that at uh, Kennedy's inauguration. Pretty freaky stuff. Nobody knew they were living in Camelot until it was over. And that is because the story was spun only after its king had departed from the world stage, scratch that, land of the living. On November 29, 1963, just four days after John F. Kennedy's funeral, 34-year-old Jackie Kennedy invited life journalist Theodore H. White to the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, and crafted a glittering fairy tale about JFK's 1,000 days in the White House. It was during their interview that the former first lady delivered a line from the uh, Lerner and Leo, uh, I guess you pronounce it Lowy musical, Camelot, to describe the Kennedy-era White House. Don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. He must have found time to go around singing those lines in between frozen war games with uh, Khrushchev and nudie swimming sessions with fiddle and faddle. She furthermore indicated that it was one of Kennedy's favorite lyrics, adding, there'll be great presidents again, but there'll never be another Camelot again. 
A grieving nation chose the extraordinary illusion, and more importantly, the spell it offered. Before venturing onward, you will want to take careful note of the number 1,000. I have already marked it by planting a Buzz Alderan moon flag, because already you should be asking yourself, how the hell does Kennedy's day in office add up to precisely 1,000? Coincidence, you say? In Hebrew, there is no such word. Contrarily, the exact clockwork precision of Kennedy's departure has all the markings of an alchemical ritual. The number one informs us that we create our own realities with our thoughts, beliefs, intents, and actions. Zero is the number of the God Force, universal energies denoting freedom from limitations in the material world, further encompassing, reinforcing, and amplifying the attributes of all other numbers it appears with. It's a gnosis thing, and unless you've been initiated, then you're not a member. Life Magazine is also spook literature at its finest, just a clever way for Intel to tell you your life is a lie, and if you prefer, we'll indoctrinate you weekly via mailbox delivery. Meanwhile, Jackie Kennedy was uh, designedly a part of the intended spell, but before this is over, you shall see how. Less than four years earlier, on February 7, 1960, the Massachusetts senator attended a Rat Pack show and introduced himself to Frank Sinatra as the next president of the United States. The mere fact that Patricia, one of Kennedy's eight siblings, had already married Rat Pack member Peter Lawford had promised to strengthen their bond. In turn, Sinatra introduced Mistress Judith E. Campbell to the campaign hopeful. The rest is history, or as Jackie called it, Camelot. In the months following his election, Kennedy's sex escapades knew no boundaries. The president routinely skinny-dipped in the White House pool with a couple of interns named Fiddle and Faddle, who I've already mentioned, but you've been introduced to them already. He smoked joints scored by another mistress, Mary Pinchot Meyer, who was described to us as a CIA official's ex-wife and friend of Jackie. Meyer simultaneously bedded with mafia leaders Sam Giacana and John Roselli. Uh, I think I need to like like say it with like holding my fingers like Roselli. You know, it always Italian always sounds better that way. Both of whom were Langley spooks, telling us that Meyer was like pra- practically everyone else involved in the unfolding narrative, an actor. To frame a clearer picture, Kennedy told author Claire Booth. Uh, I think it's loose, that he couldn't sleep unless he'd had a good lay. In reality, Patricia Kennedy had probably been hauled off to Peter Lawford. I should, I'm sorry. I, let me start, state that again. In reality, Patricia Kennedy had probably been, been handed off to Peter Lawford. The actor later referred to himself as Sinatra's pimp. And who was John Kennedy's pimp? According to Lawford, Sinatra was. But that is only the tip of the iceberg, because where would Camelot be without its wizard? And magic. Sex magic. On the night of their official meeting, Sinatra pimped out another woman to the once and future president. She went by various names, but the world simply knew her as Marilyn Monroe. Norma Jean's official bio has her being born to such humble origins that nobody apparently knows who her father is. But that is a convenient lie. Marilyn knew. There is no wiki page devoted to Charles Stanley Gifford because Intel is covering their tracks. 
We are simply told that he was a salesman for Consolidated Film Industries, the leading laboratory and film processing company in Hollywood. It just so happens to be where Marilyn's poor Midwestern mother, Gladys Pearl Baker, worked as a film cutter. The truth is that Marilyn is the result of animal husbandry. Gifford was a bull favored for his pedigree, and Marilyn was bred for a single purpose. Gladys placing baby Marilyn among foster parents in Hawthorne, California, is just another convenient component to the underdog story. Marilyn was royalty. I was able to find two Mayflower passengers in her direct lineage. Eighth great-grandfather John Alden and ninth, ninth great-great uh, Francis Cook. From Plymouth Rock, we can gaze across the Atlantic Pond and discover that America's greatest sex symbol is directly descended from 12 signers of the Magna Carta. Signer William uh, Mallet is her 21st great-grandfather. 22nd great-grandfathers include signers William D. Obney, John D. Lacey, Gilbert DeClaire, Robert de Ross, and William D. Huntington, uh, Huntingfield. Forgive me if I butcher these names. 23rd great-grandfathers include signers Hugh Late Bygod, which I always found to be a really strange name, Bygod, Richard DeClaire, Saher de Quincy, and Henry de Bohun. And then there is the matter of 24th great-grandfathers Robert Fitz, Walter, and Roger uh, I. Bygod. And there's another by God again. Both signers. Right this very moment, you should be asking yourself how 12 Magna Carta patriarchs are in any way natural. The answer is, they're not. Because the American dream is a big, fat, juicy carrot dangled by our slave masters, and nothing about Marilyn's official narrative is natural. Oh, but there's more. Her 26th great-grandfather is none other than William the Conqueror. Next, we find King Robert I, her 29th great-grandfather. Alfred the Great is her 33rd great-grandfather. And last but certainly not least, Charlemagne is her 34th great-grandfather, which firmly grounds Marilyn in the anti-Messiah bloodline. As you can rightfully imagine, we then find ourselves... Um, we then find countless other royals stemming off from her coveted pedigree. King Henry VIII is a third cousin, 12 times removed, via Richard Woodville. The Woodville line delivers Queen Elizabeth I as a fourth cousin, 11 times removed. We also find Winston Churchill and Princess Diana in her family tree. Calling Marilyn a Hollywood luminary is an understatement. I have looked into enough of these genealogies among American royals to begin and question if esoterically speaking, the signers of the Magna Carta and the Mayflower passengers were even human, because the greatest sons in the kingdom of Cain all seem to be related to them. Did you see what I just did there? I took our conversation and made it biblical. What this holiday family get-together essentially means is, Marilyn is also a bush. President George H.W. Bush is a ninth cousin one times removed via our Mayflower connections, with numerous other United States presidents filling in the ranks of cousins, including the Roosevelts and Adams. Marilyn Monroe has so many inventors, politicians, actors, entertainments, and spooks for cousins. We're talking hundreds of household names, as well as historical hoaxes like the Salem witch trials, Titanic survivors, and even serial killer H.H. Holmes uh, connected to her lineage, that it would take an entire book to describe them all.
For now you will have to be content knowing that the sins of Cain still rule the world, and Marilyn Monroe was a king or queen among them. And now, back to the bio. The Wikipedia assures us that Marilyn had a happy childhood, while Gladys was simultaneously mentally and financially unprepared for a child, quote-unquote. Oh dear, if we're being technical, then who was prepared to take on children? But indeterminate questions are not what the official narrative is after here. The only mental component of this story is the wide-eyed trapeze skills and juggling act required to make it work. By the age of seven, we are told that Marilyn Monroe was able to move into her mother's home, which she lived in with actors George and Maude Atkinson. And what happened? Gladys Baker immediately succumbed to, quote, a mental breakdown and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, unquote. She was carted away to a rest home, and then in several months' time, committed to the Metropolitan State Hospital. Afterwards, she spent the remainder of her life in and out of hospitals and was rarely in contact with her daughter. Monroe then succumbed to sexual abuse beginning in the home inhabited by the Atkinsons. You can probably recall Monroe's signature breathy speaking voice. It's fake. We are told her sexual abuse resulted in a childhood stutter, which needed correction through a speech therapist. Isn't it wonderful how Hollywood went out of their way to cultivate Monroe for the big screen? So nice of them. As a result, she adopted the throaty style we've come to love. It's all misdirection. All of this is simply Intel's way of whispering in an outdoor voice, their heavy hand in the operation. Gladys was a hamster needing removed from the prized possession, and even the childhood stutter is a hoax. Marilyn Monroe was born a man. Here comes the hate mail. Marilyn is not a man, you tell me. Already I can feel laser beam eyes coming from the carpeted cat tower attempting to pierce me through from your computer screen to my own. Perhaps you have only arrived to leave a naughty review. And yet, who likes to flaunt their breast? Men do. Cross-dressing men, that is. And who likes to dress like Marilyn? Cross-dressing men, again. But even if that is circumstantial evidence at best, Then consider once her bio. From the very get-go, the blue-blooded Monroe was thrusted into the spotlight by our slave masters. And like their spinning globe narrative, that's not natural. By early 1946, the the wiki pointedly mentions how a 19-year-old Monroe had already appeared on 33 magazine covers. Passing notes in class, are we? Ascending through the ranks, hmm? Very early on, we see her getting passed around among Yul Brynner, Peter Lawford, and Nicholas Ray, the director of Rebel Without a Cause, as well as Johnny Hyde, vice president of the William Morris Agency. Oh, and Sinatra was still bidding with her as late as 1962, the year of her exit from the world stage. When the Sultan of Swat pimped Monroe out to Kennedy in 1960, she was still married to author... Arthur Miller. I checked. Miller was a Jew. By 1952, Monroe was passed off to somebody named the Yankee Clipper, Joe DiMaggio. And in 1953, who was chosen to land on the first issue of Playboy magazine? It's okay. You can answer. We're not being rhetorical here. The answer is Marilyn Monroe. 
Playboy was an MK Ultra beehive from the very beginning, and its bunnies were shiny, glittery monarch butterflies. Why not capitalize on their main attraction? Despite everything that was thrown at us, the legend of Marilyn Monroe is most closely associated with Life magazine, and for good reason. It is lie, not a typo, which shined the spotlight onto Monroe with train station accuracy. From her official 1952 introduction to the world, when Gossam columnist Hedda Hopper declared Monroe the quote-unquote cheesecake queen turned box office smash until the very end. Somebody in the Matrix will surely argue how seldom she actually appeared in the magazine itself, as if six appearances is nothing. Sure, Liz Liz Taylor may hold the all-time record, managing 14 cover appearances over her decade-spanning career, but who else sold sex on six covers in as little as 10 years? Nobody. At her premiere in 1952, and even afterwards, it was photographer Philip um, Halsman who captured her most iconic images. That same year, Halsman photographed Marilyn Monroe pumping iron telling us of her masculinity. The muscles in her upper upper torso are telling. Later, Halsman recalled of their first meeting that she looked as if she had been pushed into the corner, uh, cornered with no way to escape. Adding, her sex appeal was not a put-on. It was her weapon and her defense. Emphasis is my own. In 1959, Monroe's iconic jumping pose landed on the life cover. Halsman again. He later explained how jumping was a device that could be employed, quote, to penetrate the masks of his sitters and expose their innermost secrets. Wait, Monroe had an innermost secret? Say it, say it ain't so. <laughs> Other jumping original uh, by Halsman include Richard M. Nixon, uh, really awkward photo, the Windsors and the Beatles. I'll save you three articles. They all had secrets. I did a little digging and discovered that Halsman also photographed John F. Kennedy in 1952, the year before he won a seat in the Senate. And now, isn't that interesting? Let's find out more about Marilyn Monroe's exterior decorator, shall we? Philip Halsman's bio is filled with the usual abnormalities. Over at the Wikipedia, we are immediately relieved of any tension by being told that he was born to your typical run-of-the-mill Jewish parents, uh, Mordok Halsman and Ida Greentuck. Mordok Halsman was a dentist and Greentuck a grammar school principal, while Philippe went on to study electrical engineering in Dresden. What, not impressed? You think that's normal? We then read that a 22-year-old houseman was accused of murdering his dentist's father in September 1928 while they were on a hiking trip in the Austrian Tyrol, which landed him a four-year prison sentence. Whoever is sitting in the back room at Langley writing these articles is quick to assure us, following sentence, that it was an area rife with anti-Semitism and that his trial was based on circumstantial evidence. Oh dear. His friends were furthermore somehow capable of rallying support from the following celebrities. Sigmund Freud, <laughs> Albert Einstein, Thomas Mann, Jacob Wasserman, Eric Fromm, Paul Payne-Levy, uh, Henrik 
Edouard Jacob, and Rudolf Olden, all of whom endorsed his innocence, telling us who Halsman was really working for. Except for writer Thomas Mann and Prime Minister of the Third French Republic, Paul Payne-Levy, they're all Jews. But even Mann had his books burned, and Rudolf Olden was an Oppenheim, which is to say Jewish-European bankers were backing this little operation. Also, we're dealing with a fake murder and a fake trial. Wilhelm Miklas, the last president of Austria until the um, Anschluss to Nazi Germany in 1938, pardoned Halsman in 1930. His present letters landed him a book deal that same year, and by 1942, having already been employed as a photographer for Vogue, he found work with the recent reconstructed Intel publication, Life magazine, in order to pursue an unusual hat fetish. His contributions to the magazine would include a decade-long friendship with occult-based surrealist artist Salvador Dali and land him on 101 life covers by which Monroe was not excluded. Halsman is the photographer responsible for the 1948 work Dali uh, Atomicus, which depicts Dali suspended midair with three flying cats and a floating chair while a bucket of water is being thrown. I checked. Dali was a Jew. Albert Einstein's initial contribution to the Hosman mythos would not be forgotten. Hosman is responsible for the 1947 portrait of Einstein, whereas the sad, puppy-eyed Wizard of Oz uh, gazes directly into the camera and expresses remorse for his role in the atomic bomb hoax. Hausman's photograph would land on a 1966 U.S. postage stamp and, in 1999, the cover of Time magazine when Einstein was pronounced Person of the Century. How in the world did Einstein manage to become the Person of the Century? Because the theoretical mathematician still served as the hinges for the Copernican Revolution, and Intel desperately needed to keep their humbug puppet afloat. This is really wordy tonight. I need to get a drink of coffee here. Hold on. On another topic entirely, but not really, the fashion designer responsible for a Monroe's ballerina dress photo shoot in 1954 is someone named Milton H. Green. Green was a Jew. Under the skin, the man in Marilyn Monroe. Some things cannot be faked, like an Adam's apple, for instance. And Marilyn Monroe clearly had one of them. You can see it for yourself in various photographs whenever she cocks her head back. There are technically several aspects of a person's body which cannot be faked, but we shall turn to those in a moment. During puberty, adolescents experience a growth in the larynx, what we call the voice box. In males, the front of the thyroid cartilage that surrounds the larynx tends to protrude outward. You will tell me that some girls display the same physical feature and that Marilyn is obviously one of those rare exceptions to the rule. Then already you have forgotten about the fake voice. Monroe labored to turn our attention towards her breast, rather than the fact that grown men who speak in deeper tones have an Adam's apple, which is far more prominent. And another thing, although it is possible to achieve a more masculine or feminine look through hormone therapy, plastic surgery, gym training, and voice coaching, one cannot simply change their skeletal structure. For example, a prominent skull ridge is a feature of a man. Also, long fingers and feet. 
a thick neck, all qualities of Marilyn Monroe. Male or female hands will always look different, as will their hip-to-waist and shoulder-to-head ratio. Notice her broad shoulders, whereas her hips are not wide at all. Monroe's handlers would employ any number of techniques to cover it up. Something as simple as a belt around the waist can give her the feminine look, and Marilyn would often roll her shoulders forwards or back so as to camouflage their width. Particularly when she's younger, you can see the striking contrast of narrow hips and broad shoulders. You will tell me I'm being unfair, that I am aiding and abetting in the body image struggles of women everywhere. Vogue already covers these bases. A woman is told she can never look like that as she stares at the boyish bodies of supermodels and then notices something she can only describe as ugly fingers, her own ugly fingers, holding the page open. Who did Intel roll out to send an entire generation of men away from women, real women, and foraging rather for refugee, uh, for refuge and masturbation but Monroe? Look at pictures of her rib cage, particularly in her later years. It looks like a rib removal procedure had been done. Like Eve from Adam. It's probably how they pulled off the illusion of an hourglass figure, particularly in her later years. In a series of still images from the bikini test in her last unfinished picture, which we shall turn to shortly, there's a strange anomaly on the right side of her body, directly below the rib cage. Marilyn Monroe had surgery. The androgynous gnosis. Among Illuminati families, gender reassignment is deemed a service to their master and an acceptable alternative to child sacrifice. The earliest mention that I can find of child sacrifice as an immortal rite derives from the ancient Homeric hymn to Demeter, textbook literature for the Eleusinian mysteries, whereas Demeter is whereas Demeter is prevented from tossing the mortal child Demophon, a grain god, into the flames, which would thereby transform him into an immortal soul. Androgyny is just another avenue for the same immortalization process. More on that in a moment, because in exoteric, non-divine terms, the androgynous child will be groomed and then thrust into the spotlight to help further the trans agenda. You see, wherever there is an esoteric truth, there is undoubtedly an exoteric shroud of misinformation intended to mask it from the gullible public. If the esoteric is by definition intended for or likely to be understood by only a small number of people with a specialized knowledge or interest, then the exoteric is the counter-explanation by which it is intended for or likely to be understood by the general public. Secret societies run our world, yes? Moses put it out there in very blunt terms. The sons of Cain have had a go at it since the very beginning. If you can come to grasp that truth, then you'll finally begin to understand why they package their spiritual ambitions in plain sight, but in a closely guarded exoteric language. Here, I'll give you a couple of examples. Science with a capital S claims to fully function in the exoteric realm, and yet Darwinian evolution is purely grounded in Gnostic doctrine. Oh, and that's another thing. Marilyn and Charles Darwin are cousins. Surprise? I'm not. In evolutionary terms, Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim, is deemed the Demirge, while hell itself is already confirmed as part of its doctrine. 
For the Gnostic, hell is the realm we live in. The Darwinian scientist, like the Gnostic, only wishes to circumnavigate the demiurge and escape it. The ancient Gnostic fell into two camps, um, ascetics and uh, libertines, which I won't comment on here. Augustine was actually a uh, Manichi at one time, and he was a spook, more like a double agent. But the point is, by reducing us to a machine made of meat, the Darwinian asked the truly enlightened to look within, to gnosis, something that can only be conveyed without words or images. Communism portrays itself as an atheistic political movement. Sure, whatever. That's the exoteric explanation. The founders of the communist movement claimed to be atheists, and yet communism was born of Jews. The occult meaning behind communism is hidden. For the esoteric, the collective body makes up the um, egregore, meaning thought form or collective group mind. The egregore is the collective god of communism. To put this in slightly other terms, when the architects of communism spoke about atheism, they did so in a way which sought to murder Yahuwah the Most High, meaning there is no God outside of themselves. By spreading communism worldwide, they were in fact expanding on the greater divine consciousness. There is more to it than that, such as the Talmudic and Kabbalah regions of communism, but that is a discussion for another time. Ultimately, the mystery of every ancient school undresses an esoteric concept which advertises a divine spark or seed innate in the individual human soul. For the pagan, salvation is delivered through a gnosis which cannot be described but only experienced as a turning inward to the self, a non-rational, mystical experience of seeing oneself at the center of a circle that has no boundaries, where all distinctions are eliminated. You will spend little effort connecting the dots to the lie of the serpent in the garden when the destination of every esoteric truth is explained as one in which salvation consists in liberating the divine essence from all that prevents true self-expression. The modern Gnostic C.G. Jung put it like this, The self is a circle whose center is everywhere and and whose circumference is nowhere. And now for the esoteric meaning behind androgyny. For starters, Baphomet is an androgynous being. What, don't believe me? All you need to do is comb the matrix for a picture of the Azazel goat god to know that Satan has tits. On closer inspection, the, uh, <laughs> the uh, caduceus phallus thingy rising out of its loin secretes serpent seed, but that's probably none of my business. Androgyny is thus the physical symbol of an ancient spiritual goal, the restoration of time before chaos, the undifferentiated union of sexes and mystical return to the state of Godhead Godhead prior to creation. By merging two seemingly distinct entities, the androgynous being embodies the Virgin Mary giving birth to herself as a divine being thereby attaining mystical union with the all. Thus, he or she, or it, or whatever is no longer created in Elohim's image, but Lucifer. Capiche? It would require a book to write every homoerotic tale arising from Greek mythology. I'll save you the time. Apollo takes the icing on the cake. In Rome, initiation rites within the... uh, Bacchanalia, or, you know, Bacchus, involved homosexual rape. But the androgynous agenda is far older. 
Gaze back upon the Sumerian pantheon and you will find an Elohim who never becomes fully male, but appears assigned rather to a female with male gender characteristics. Ishtar, her Canaanite counterpart, Anat, is all woman except for the fact that she's also a bearded soldier. Both Anat and Ishtar thus symbolize the mystical union, and we need only look to scripture to see that Judah and Israel were constantly put on guard against the enroaching homosexual agenda of their neighbors. Israel failed miserably. The Christian tradition advocates LGBTQ, they've added a few new numbers and I think a plus sign to that now, as the contagious expression of personal weakness. But that is only because Intel directs Christians to an exoteric belief, when in fact homosexuality is a reliable discipline of Intel projects like Theosophy and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, where we pull such books as Helena Blavatsky, Aleister Crowley, and Charles Lee Better from the hat. You will recall that Yahuwah, a.k.a. the Demirge of Gnosticism, had created Eve from Adam's thigh. The 15th century German philosopher and Christian mystic Jacob Bomey advocated in alchemical terms how Adam was androgynous and that his female counterpart only appeared as a result of the fall. Franz von Bader was one of Bomi's successors, and he postulated that androgyny would appear again at the ends of time. So, there you go. The agenda. Some like it hot. There's a reason why so many drag queens impersonate Marilyn Monroe, but you already know the answer to that. Hollywood made a point of shoving the truth in plain sight with the 1959 release of Some Like It Hot. But even before that, the 1953 film, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which starred Monroe and Jane Russell, featured a pair of leading ladies that were in actuality men. Yeah, both of them. And uh, (laughs) if you research Jane Russell, she's even uh, more flaming. Until, uh, Until 1661, let me repeat that. Until 1661, women were forbidden from performing on the stage. And this, of course, according to the official history. Shakespeare only employed men, even for the kissing parts. It's a tradition that goes all the way back to when acting began as a ritual magic in the Babylonian mystery religion. When you stop to think about it, very few women still act. Hot was directed by Billy Wilder and co-starred Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis, a.k.a. Bernard Schwartz. Both uh, Wilder and Curtis were Jews. The film received six Academy Award nominations, including Best Actor, Best Director, and Best Adapted Screenplay, winning for Best Costume Design. I put that in red for a reason. Best Costume Design. And why do you think that is? Search your feelings. You know it to be true. The costume was Marilyn. In 1989, the Library of Congress selected Some Like It Hot as one of the first 25 films for preservation in the United States National Film Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Now, ask yourself how dressing in drag falls into any one of those categories. According to the official narrative, it doesn't. You figure there's some back room in Burbank where they're endlessly lighting up cigars, sadistically watching men deny the obvious while they rub one out. The American Film Institute later selected Some Like It Hot as the greatest comedy of all time. 
probably no agenda there. I decided to give AFI's comedy list a looksy-loo just to see what else they thought was worthy uh, or what else was worth my laughter. And this is what I found. Number two on their list is the 1982 Dustin Hoffman movie, Tootsie. Seriously? More transgenderism. Number three belongs to Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangeglove. Having only moved two notches down on that list, I already found myself slamming my head across the desk and in contempt of a New World Order court, as we're obviously dealing with another Intel movie. The atomic bomb was a hoax, people. Its special effects were created at the same film studio where they produced the bomb test. Lookout Mountain. Say it ain't so. Also in the top 10 is another Hoffman movie, The Graduate. The movie was released in 1967 as a modern-day vampire tale with a married middle-aged woman played, uh, playing the Bella Lugosi part. The underlying message being that the 60s youth would fall victim to the predatory sexual advances of intel and love every minute of it. Prepping for Posthumous with any high-profile Intel project such as Marilyn Monroe, we should expect to see the gears lubricated, the clock fully wound, in the days and months leading up to the event. The Wikipedia ensures us that Monroe returned to the public eye in the spring of 1962 to receive a World Film Favorite Golden Globe Award. See what I mean? But also to begin shooting a high-profile movie for Fox. Something's got it to give. It co-starred Rat Pack alum, uh, alumni Dean Martin, and its director was a Hollywood veteran named George Cukor. Hopefully I pronounced that right. Cukor had earlier directed the Judy Garland vehicle, A Star is Born, but even decades before that, the Ingrid Bergman intel movie, Gaslight. I checked. Cukor uh, was born in Manhattan to immigrant Jews. Get this. In the movie, Monroe plays a photographer and mother of two who, after being declared legally dead in the civilized world, spends the next five years living on an island in the Pacific with somebody who's compared to Adam. Upon returning to claim her husband, who happens to be on his honeymoon with another bride, Monroe disguises herself with a new name and a thick accent. Only the dog recognizes her. Ha ha. To calm her husband's jealousy, Monroe hires a shoe salesman to only pretend and be her Adam counterpart. Are you not entertained? They can shove this crap, excuse my French, in your face knowing that an exoteric audience will never peel the layers of the onion back. For the record, Something's Got to Give was never finished. The movie was eventually abandoned, but that was the point all along. It was never intended to be released to begin with. You will tell me that they shut down production because Marilyn Monroe died. No, she was fired. Her public flogging was all for show. The fact that Monroe caught uh, um, I guess sinuistus. I sorry, guys. My eyes are feeling tonight. Only days before filming began in April was not a coincidence. The Wikipedia adds she was too sick for the majority of the next six weeks, but despite confirmations by multiple doctors, the studio press, uh, pressurized her by alleging publicly that she was faking it. Why would Fox Studios even insinuate that their leading lady was faking it? Because Intel is a uh, pharmaceutical dealer of blue pills, 
and spoonfuls of sugar help the cognitive dissonance go down. Inviting the press to photograph Monroe while she swam naked in a swimming pool was just another element of the slave master's spanking process. Who arrived and published them but life? It would land Monroe on her last cover. Clockwork precision, people. The photographer's name is Lawrence Schiller. Schiller, however, isn't simply listed as a life photographer. The Wikipedia also lists him as a film producer, director, and screenwriter. And FYI, Schiller is a Jewish name. If that's not enough red flags for you, then you've come to the right place. Following the 1994 stabbing hoax of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman, Schiller visited O.J. Simpson in jail before his acquittal. They collaborated on a book together called I Want to Tell You. On May 19th, Monroe took another break from filming a failing movie to stand center stage at Madison Square Garden in New York City and sing a sleazy rendition of Happy Birthday, Mr. President for Kennedy. We are told Hollywood did not approve. Sure, let's go with that. The point of this little exercise is once again obvious, as Intel was drawing the picture, uh, excuse me, Intel was drawing the public consciousness into their scripted narrative precisely as Fox had done weeks earlier. Only here the curtain is being pulled back on the homoerotic sex lives of John and Bobby Kennedy. But in true gaslighting fashion, you're psychologically ill for noticing. Everything leading up to the death of Marilyn Monroe, and even afterwards, was psychodrama. Intel was simply turning up the flame and letting the alchemical juices simmer on the front burner of America's thinking. When she went on sick leave again for several days in Hollywood, Fox decided that it could not afford the juggling act of another film running behind schedule, as rising costs from the Elizabeth Taylor vehicle Cleopatra had already set them back. On June 7th, Fox fired Monroe and sued her for $750,000 in damages. She was replaced by Lee Rimmick. But after Martin refused to make the film with anyone other than Monroe, Fox sued him as well and shut down the production. Monroe then posed naked again for photographer Bert Stern. Stern was a Jew. And just like Sharon Tate's last photo session, it's quite obvious in hindsight that Monroe, Monroe she knew, throughout her various poses and wardrobe changes, that they'd be publishing posthumous. It was the final act, and this was her farewell. Meanwhile, Wiki claims, The studio blamed Monroe for the film's demise and began spreading negative publicity about her, even alleging that she was mentally disturbed. Is America paying attention yet? Good, because here we go. Her final bow. At some point during the Kennedy administration, Marilyn Monroe exchanged hands between the president and his attorney general, Bobby Kennedy. Peter Lawford likely played the part of the pimp, though even Sinatra was still bidding with Monroe in 1962, as previously mentioned. Another buxom babe who fell into Kennedy's arms was Jane Mansfield, and she was a dude. Yeah, the androgynous agenda is a global phenomenon and goes miles beyond Monroe. It's okay, you can say it. Mansfield. We are led to believe that Monroe had supposed while engaging in pillow talk with Bobby, that he would divorce his wife and marry a pinup in her stead. But that is simply more misdirection aimed at creating the Camelot heiress psychodrama. As invented a plot point or 
as invented a plot point as the second shooter. Kind of like how Monroe's death is as fake as the first shooter. But in presidential terms, I'm getting ahead myself. Perhaps Intel really did sit around at the writer's table, imagining a scenario where Monroe cleaned up her act, perhaps converting to Judaism or Roman Catholicism, and ascended to the rank of first lady. But at any rate, the idea was scrapped and assigned a subplot. It would be revisited again for the Trump administration. All we are left with is Monroe's incessant phone calls to the Attorney General's office, which supposedly convinced Bobby Kennedy that he needed to terminate the affair. Monroe's supposed abortion is just another excuse as to why Monroe could never mother a child. We are then told that Peter Lawford, apparently playing the part of White House liaison rather than Rat Pack actor, gave her the news. In other words, Bobby called the pimp and asked for a new prostitute. Within days, she made national headlines. Marilyn Monroe was dead. As an added stroke to the canvas, Intel made sure that everyone knew the corpse of Hefner's first bunny was discovered in the nude. Touché. On Saturday, August 4th, only hours before she left the world stage due to acute barbiturate uh, poisoning, if we are to go by her autopsy report, Marilyn Monroe and her publicist, Patricia Newcomb, stood around the pool at her 12305 Fifth Helena Drive home, engaged in a heated argument. On the night prior, Newcomb had slept over. We are told it was to keep Monroe company, but more than likely it was to control her. What were they arguing about? Maybe Monroe wasn't ready to offer her final bow quite yet. Who really knows? Or perhaps it was all part of the intended programming between the slave and her handler. Just your typical good cop, bad cop routine. Pay attention because in a few minutes, you'll see the switch. Patricia Newcomb initially became Monroe's publicist in 1956 during the filming of Bus Stop. She was replaced for a time, but then rehired in 1960, probably because the Kennedy wheels were now in motion. They needed Newcomb to play her part in the Camelot myth-making, but also to help in the famous Disappearing Act. An image search in The Matrix will show Newcomb often standing in the crowd, but only feet away from Marilyn. Among her many accompanied events during the Kennedy administration, Madison Square Garden is one of them telling us time and again she was one of her handlers. The wiki lists Newcomb as an information specialist in the United States Information Agency and a consultant to the Justice Department, as if that's not suspicious. She was born in Washington, D.C., and her mother was a levy. Her father, Carmen Newcomb Jr., was the son of a U.S. House representative of the same name but was also a lawyer and represented coal companies owned by George Shekhill. You may want to hold on to something or make sure you're not standing near to a ledge because Shekhill's daughter married a Kennedy, Bobby and Ethel Kennedy. They were married in 1950. Five years later, George and his wife Anne were killed in a private airplane crash. But planes falling from the sky while carrying the payload of rich elites is none of my business. And because spooks all swim in the same circle, Patricia Newcomb later worked for Pierre Salinger, Bobby Kennedy's press secretary, but who had already been employed as the White House press secretary for both Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. After Monroe's death, Newcomb continued to work in both Washington and Hollywood. 
Same thing. Representing Intel projects Barbara Streisand and Natalie Wood, while also hammering away as Bobby Kennedy's campaign manager. We are told she worked Kennedy until his assassination, telling us she had a part to play in the curtain closing. Blink and you'll miss it, because the Wikipedia adds, in 1985, Newcomb was named vice president of the motion picture production at MGM. Wait, what? The woman who dipped her paws into the Kennedy White House also made movies? At 4.30 in the afternoon, Monroe's psychiatrist, uh, Ralph Greenson, arrived at the house to conduct another therapy session with Monroe. Sure, let's go with that. Greenson asked Newcomb to leave. And there you have it. The good cop, bad cop routine. Almost fell for it, didn't you? He stayed until 7 p.m. after nearly three hours of therapy and instructed her housemaid, Eunice Murray, to stay overnight and keep Monroe company. Intel loves to involve the maid in their psyops. It gives the narrative a facelift, more like a mask of honesty, when in fact Monroe was completely owned and everyone surrounding her were either pimps and handlers or bought and paid for. Stick around and you'll see the same trick of the trade employed for the Manson murders. That's in my next book. I checked. Ralph Greensend, like Newcomb, was a Jew. At the beginning of his medical career, he was closely associated with Wilhelm Stickel, a man often referred to as Freud's most distinguished pupil. Freud comes up a lot in these uh, Intel projects. A roster of Greensend's famous clients included actress Vivian Leigh, but also two names which pop up around here often, Tony Curtis and Frank Sinatra. How convenient. We then read that he and his wife, Heldy Greenson, were good friends with Freud's daughter, Anna Freud, as well as other establishment Freudians, Margaret Mead and Fawn Brody. Brody's husband, Bernard Brody, was an intel guy and described as a nuclear strategist. In 1946, just months after the Hiroshima and Nagasaki hoaxes, Brody is accredited with creating a fear-mongering tactic which still lives on today. The usefulness of the atomic bomb, he said, was not in its deployment, but in the threats of its deployment. Mm -hmm, Exactly. How very convenient and thoughtful of our slave masters to only threaten its use rather than actually going through with it. Finally, in 1968, Ralph Greenson offered his development theory for homosexuality, and it is this. Boys need to disidentify from their mothers and choose rather to identify with their fathers. Analyzing Marilyn, are we? (laughs) Joe DiMaggio Jr. next enters the narrative. He called somewhere between 7 o'clock and 7.15 that evening to inform Monroe that he had broken up with his wealthy girlfriend, Uh, with his wealthy girlfriend, who she didn't like. Monroe then called her publicist at around 7.40 through 7.45 to let her in on the news. Yeah, Green sent again. Wasn't she toxic and asked to leave? She was. But then consider how Joe DiMaggio Jr. spent the remainder of his life sipping on booze, overdosing on drugs, succumbing to homelessness, and at one point having a chunk of his brain removed after an quote-unquote automobile accident, all while managing to marry an Adams of the Adams family. This is precisely what you would expect to see from someone who knew something far too naughty for his own good. Monroe called her favorite controller and spilled the beans, just as she was wired to do, busted. DiMaggio was screwed. 
At precisely 8 p.m., Marilyn then received a call from Peter Lawford. Really, this guy again? The official narrative makes this way too easy. We are told that Lawford was simply attempting to prostitute, scratch that, persuade her to attend his party later that night. And that he was furthermore alarmed because Monroe sounded like she was under the influence of drugs. But more than likely, everybody's favorite pimp was concerned that Monroe had cold feet and that their little operation wouldn't go off without a hitch. Perhaps he needed a first-hand report of what DiMaggio knew. Lawford later reported that Monroe told him, Say goodbye to Pat, say goodbye to the president, and say goodbye to yourself because you're a nice guy. Her last known words were spun in such a way as to nourish the suicide narrative when in fact Monroe decided to go through with it, the disappearing trick that is, and understood the unlikelihood of seeing Team Monroe again. On Sunday, August 5th, 1962, Marilyn Monroe joined the ranks of Ascended Masters. In little over a year's time, John F. Kennedy would join her, and soon, very soon, Bobby Kennedy would too. As we have already seen, a widowed Kennedy stayed behind to spin the Camelot illusion with life journalist Theodore H. White, but that's nowhere near the whole of it. Even, <laughs> well, even Jackie Kennedy was a man. I'll go ahead and say it. Um, I, I I went there, but anyways. Um, that concludes that. Um, interestingly enough, I learned after writing this paper that uh, the man who <laughs> did the autopsy for Marilyn Rowe was, uh, he was the same guy involved in the autopsies in the uh, Manson murders, I think. Um, I'd have to look at those papers, but it's like, you know, they're all related to each other, all these psyops. Um, anyways, there's that. I managed to get through that. There was a lot of very wordy words in there, and it's late. But um, I'll open up the floor and tell me what you guys thought. Uh, way to go, dude. <laughs> I remember reading this um, article when you first put it out. In, I, I think it was over a year ago, maybe more. You cover a lot of ground. Um, some sensibilities might <laughs> get touched, but great, um, article again, um, you touch a lot of bases, um, opens to some questions for some, which is how looking because and she's 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 a classic he's she's a classic example where the media um really came into people's lives and the programming and like like you said one of the first um, first playboy hollywood one of the hollywood stars pinups of the modern age and you really, in the beginning of the article, touch base on this before you even, you know, before you reveal going into that. So great, great sharing. Yeah. Now, one of the reasons this was the first paper I ever wrote on the uh, androgyny agenda, and I chose Marilyn Monroe for a specific reason. One is that I, I, 
I guess I didn't feel bad. I mean, some people are really attached to Marilyn Monroe. Like, like some women love Marilyn Monroe, and they disregard the fact that she started Playboy magazine. You know, she sold sex, all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, overlooked. You know how terrible her life actually was. Um, and I guess what I didn't say in there is that I have I have concluded that if the six sadistic people who run this world if they could get a dude to dress up like a woman and get guys all over the world, generations of men to lust after that guy, they would do it. And I, I, you know, I wrote this paper fully believing that Marilyn Monroe is that accomplishment. And it goes much further than this. Now the question was, yes, you expressed it clear. So, um, excellent. I'll just say, and bringing this, that prime example in, Please continue. Now, the question was asked, did this happen in any biblical history? And uh, I had started out kind of hinting at some of it. Yes, it did. I, I talked in here about, you know, like the Greeks and the Babylonians. So that was happening all around uh, Canaan or, or Yasharel. And those cultures were coming in. I, had I started out talking about, um, I think I'm pronouncing it right, God or Gad. Um, that was a, a androgynous Elohim that was both male and female. This is, uh, that was the Elohim of fortune. And in Isaiah, it was either chapter 65 or 66. I had mentioned it earlier tonight. He had mentioned specifically that the, uh, the Yahudim or was it the Israelites, I think it was the Yahudim while they were in Babylonian captivity, they were actually worshiping this deity. And so you actually do see androgyny within scripture and it was always coming in. Um, and many of the uh, the priests, the ancient priests, would be androgynous, and it, it it was everywhere. And in the ancient world, it was like in your face, like they just put it out there. Um, and nowadays, they're putting it out there everywhere, but they're lying to you about it and what they're actually doing. Yeah, I think it goes as you explained further. It's been part of the satanic agenda the whole time, and it leads to that in a way the futuristic futurist or we could bring it into the um what do i say not the transgender the transhuman where it's like genderless you're a robot what is your gender it it's um arbitrary what i what i choose so that shows you part like why well why would that be again this is anti-God, anti-Christ. This is against Yahuwah's divine plan. So, of course, it would be attacked. And, and to have this um, brought out, to see this agenda clearly, you, it really makes sense. Now, uh, Josh and David were talking about here, again, about God. Uh, it's it's spelled G A D, but it's pronounced G A W D, like God. And this is the reason I started out saying that. Um, now, keep in mind that I don't I don't believe that we are forbidden to say the names of the other Elohim, or else uh, some of these uh, books of the Bible are in trouble because they do mention them. Um, we are not to say the names of these gods reverently, and this is why I had started out saying that I don't refer to Yahuwah 
as a god. I refer to him as an Elohim, or the most high Elohim. And I only refer now to the pagan Elohim as gods. Um, and th- because God is one of them, the, the Babylonian um, Elohim of fortune, who just so happens to be on our money. In God we trust. That's not a coincidence, guys. Like that's that is intended, and Satan is trying to trip us up and get us to worship other Elohim. So, yeah, Sean was mentioning in the chat um, the purpose of lusting after other men, and this is another part that you bring out. Um, can you speak to that? No, the confusion for us. Uh, well, I'll share how the well, we just- don't look at a normal woman anymore because we're like that's not what we think a woman should look like when it's actually a false image again the false image again well yeah now this is important to know like we've read in this group when we were reading uh joseph and Asenath, but you also see that i think in jasher and probably genesis 2 and other books where it talks about yosef how he refused to look at um to look at other women. He refused. And like in Joseph and Essenes, we saw where he walked into the uh, Essenes house and he would set up his own table. And, you know, I guess he was so good looking, you know, like women would throw their bras at him or whatever back then. But, um, and this is why, one of the reasons why it's so important that we guard our heart and not, you know, allow ourselves to lust after the women that they're putting in front of us on camera, like supermodels, movie stars, magazines, all these kind of things, internet, because like the androgynous agenda is real and they are totally getting us to lust after, you know, these different men. But, you know, we could get into the whole discussion of, you know, Playboy and how that all started and uh, they, generations of men uh, grew up not, you know, feeling, um, you know, certain estranged from actual real women um, by, you know, looking at these magazines and, you know, women, you know, look at these boyish figures in Vogue and other things and, and feel like they can never measure up to that and, and so on and so forth. It's just, it, um, it gets. That you, that you touch on right there again, how the confusion goes deep. Well, what I was trying to say is I was glad you went there with the whole um, connection, connecting, quote unquote, her to royalty, right? Because this really mostly starts and goes back with the royals. And it might be hard for most people to see it or understand until they train their eyes, but every royal is inverted. That's where the word queen comes from. They're all queens, quote unquote. I'm glad you're bringing this up because I was going to say it's the inversion again. Yeah, it's elite elite gender inversion. It's part of it's their religion. So they, what what um, Noel was kind of getting at in a sense, without going too far in that direction, is their idea at the beginning when you guys were kind of kicking it around before you got started reading, is their twisted understanding of of the creation story right so they believe that adam and eve were a dual being and then they were just separated and instead of you know adam and adam being representing mankind and then literally eve was literally created from adam's rib they believe that they were a dual being and so that's how they're that's how they're raised 
they were, I think they were doing it with hormones and maybe some, you know, of course, a lot of smoke and mirrors before there was ever surgeries and stuff. But nowadays, there's ways to um, treat the fetus before it's ever born. So like, you know, they tell you the truth in all the, the songs and the movies, you know, Lady Gaga song, Born This Way, right? Well, they're born that way. <laughs> because they were forced to be, they were created in the womb, you know, the, another, another album, In Utero, right? You know, it's everywhere. And the, the best way to, like I said, is to just train your eyes. So you've got to go back and look at what a real male skeleton, you know, the skeleton is what you can never, you can't, I mean, they're, they're even finding ways to change some of those things. You know, they're adding, you know, forehead implants and brow ridges and, you know, of course, breasts. That's not skeletal, but, you know, the training them how to build out their shoulders to look wider if you're going, you know, female to male. I'm just it, it, jaw implants. I mean, apple, Adam's apple implants, you wouldn't believe everything that they put these poor people through. through and... So I would actually also like to interject here that, you know, have much compassion, especially for these ones, most of them are raised like this. They don't, they didn't get a choice in the matter. It's child abuse at the highest level. And like you said, it's equivalent of child um, sacrifice in a sense. Yeah, now there's some um, actors and actresses now, I, I, I think, is it Charlize uh, Theron? If I'm not mistaken, uh, I didn't have notes prepared on this in front of me, but it just came to my mind that I think she's the one that she's actually in the public eye, like um, she's raising a boy as a girl, I think it is. And um, it's it, you can look it up and it's just like, wow, like they're just like, yeah, there's so many, there's so many nowadays that they promote it. Well, and a lot of so like Charlize Theron is a man himself. So obviously um, not going to have his own children. So they got to adopt, right? And you see them all, the Jolie Pitts adopting all these um, um, black Did children. Did you go into more? Yeah, black children. And, and, and then they're transing them. I mean, that's their, and like you said, Charlize Theron is literally doing it right in front of everyone's face and nobody's saying a thing. Walking around with his boy, making him wear a dress. Now calling it a girl. It's just. Could you go into the in utero a little bit more? How that just like my mind went, okay, I haven't heard that. How are they? It, it doesn't surprise me. It's like, oh yeah, of course. They're doing the gene editing or hormone. Well, whether it's in a womb in a woman or in a um, room in a bubble machine you know artificial womb um that they're somehow messing with the gender then well i think that was the initial way that they would kind of pointedly do it for certain um people but now they're you know they're doing it to all of us they're putting the hormones in the food they're bringing soy in as a staple um you know it's it's happening the the what's the other song blurred lines you know you almost it makes so much sense to challenge. me like as you just laid it out as it's been happening to the modern world that wow again we got to realize this is not new tech no it's they've just and, improved on it and now they're making they want us they want to blend in so they got to make the rest of us look the same or be the same 
So now they're just basically pushing it to where they, it's a mind control agenda where people are signing themselves up for it. And I think in many cases, a lot of people are, they have this desire, they have this mental break of, of disassociation with their physical um, um, being because something's already happened. You know, they've already gotten overexposed in some way. So like someone like Chaz Bono was already a boy. They raised him as a girl. And so now all he is doing is going back to his original self. So that's another thing. I think that's they're using these people. Same thing with Bruce Jenner. Bruce Jenner was a female. It's going to be hard for people to believe that. But Bruce Jenner was already a female, was raised as a male. You can't be in the Olympics to the Greek gods without being transgender, pretty much. I mean, there might be some exceptions, but the overarching point of the whole thing is is worship of their gods. And, you know, you can see it. I mean, to me, there's there's some that are so obvious, but we're so bamboozled by just not expecting this you know now people might be able to like if i say okay venus and serena are both boys hello but i mean my mom will just be like oh, stop saying that you know she just can't bring herself to see it when to me it's so obvious i mean it's, it's like there's no other answer but um so the thing with the with the in utero thing like i said they've just advanced their their ways of of accomplishing it so I think that's the very reason they've invented things like ultrasound, right? They do an ultrasound. Why? Because they want to see what the sex is. Why? So they can change it. <laughs> and that's, and then, you know, and then they push all that stuff onto us. You know, everything they do is for their purposes. And then it just bleeds into our, you know, in, in, into the masses. Now, I'm, I'm glad Lisa's on here talking when, just so everybody knows, before I actually set out to write this article, I actually took a, I think it might have been the first time I ever talked to you on the phone, Lisa, I'm not quite sure, but I actually took a phone call with Lisa and we talked for a while to try to kind of get ideas from her and she was really helpful um, in me kind of thinking through this process of how I was going to write it. And I, I you know, wrote it more from a very historical perspective, but um, her, like her knowledge is is on this subject is way beyond my own like i've i've kind of i've like peered down i guess the rabbit hole on this one and you know the rabbit hole is another horrible mk ultra kind of disassociation term but you know i've kind of peered in and i i've seen this and i know that this agenda is legitimate um i haven't i haven't um gone as far into this as lisa has i was I was going to ask you how far do you think this goes, but you brought up the Olympics and you kind of explained that right there. So uh, that seems like that's pretty deep. Well, and it, it okay, so because they're trying, I, I believe, just from my point of view, from what I understand now, that these people are, are born into this agenda. They're um, raised inverted and they're told probably and MK Ultra their whole life to believe you're special, you're different, you're like God, right? And everyone else is just a nobody peon, you just have your secret, right? And then they get rewarded, right, by what? Being a star of some sort. And what are stars, right? The stars are the angels or the gods that they're, they think that they're becoming one, right? So 
if you're a star of any level, you're either already born into it, into the agenda, or you're doing major, major sacrifices. Um, and I had, I had it really, obviously, strongly insinuated or stated that in this, you know, saying that Marilyn Monroe was clearly uh, bred for that purpose and raised from the time. I could have shown, I could have like just shown like more like baby photos of her and. When when she, when Marilyn Monroe is a baby, like it looks like she looks like a like a boy. Like it it looks like yeah, it looks like a little boy. She doesn't start looking like a woman till sometime later. You know, I didn't even you had mentioned the stars. It's funny because I grew up. Well, it's not funny at all. But you know, I I grew up actually in Hawthorne, California, where mm. apparently where apparently Marilyn Monroe grew up. Um, and when she grew up there, it must have been a total hick town. The other people who grew up in Hawthorne were the Beach Boys. But I used to go down. You know, as the bird flies, I was very close to to Hollywood, and you would go down there and just walk the sidewalks, and you know, with all the stars imprinted on the sidewalks. And it just gives me shivers now, but it just, I never even thought about it. It just never batted an eye back then about, you know, the, these people identifying with the stars in heaven, uh, you know, these fallen, these falling, fallen stars that are on the sidewalks. Above, so below, right? There's the stars yeah. in heaven and you look down and you're standing on them on the sidewalk, you know? Yep. Like, and to me, that's, you know, that's how they stick with the agenda. They stick with the story. That's why so many of them are drugged. Their whole, you know, they always die of drugs or they're, they're drugged their whole life or they're, or they're, you know, mind controlled to such a level, or they just like, they like the agenda. They like the perks. They like the fame. It, it you know, they, they like the, um, the talent, right? So like, you know, all the singers, all the actors, all the sports stars, all the politicians, anyone in power, you cannot get to that kind of level unless you are connected, inverted, or doing some major sacrifice of some sort. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. How, um, so how, how far do you think this does go? I mean, because you had talked about the Olympics, you talk about the, the royalty. Like in Hollywood, from what you have looked at, uh, the modeling world, you know, how many people are inverted? Well, I'm like I said, if if you're in any kind of if the spotlight's on you, okay, then you you're you got to play the the game, and we're, but we're just so used to seeing it, we don't understand. So I I believe what they're doing now because transgenderism is now kind of a thing, and you know they're pushing it so that people will choose it on their own right, and then um, so I'm noticing you know. I'm, confess one of my vices I do still watch a little TV here and there and it's just funny because these shows now are bringing in supposedly transgender characters but they always look so completely obvious right you know like that video where it's it's ma'am right so now they want us to think oh th this is what transgenders look like not Jennifer Ander Aniston you know because they're still hiding they're still lying to us so they want you to think that, oh, you know, this the obvious man in a dress with a wig and lipstick is what a transgender looks like, not, you know, um, Sandra Bullock or, you know what I'm saying? So that's exactly. So <laughs> I've got so many uh, thoughts in my head. So you said, how far does this go back? Do you know that they've admitted and when they studied King Tut's um, skeleton that he has female hips. Ooh. Wow. So this goes all the way back. 
And Mr. E, people, anybody that looked into this at all, there was a guy that was doing what we call transvestigation videos, and he, his name was Mr. E, and he had a really awesome channel, channel for a long time. I've saved a lot of his work. And what I liked about him is he went way back into the history. He dug up some awesome stuff, and he was a Christian. He would dig up even in the scriptures. Okay, so I wish I had a way to share my screen. But if you look at um, 1 Corinthians uh, 6-9, the word the the verse says hold on I'm saved it here know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of god be not deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor effeminate nor abusers of themselves with mankind okay so there's that's been translated many different ways but the word means effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, passive or practicing homosexuals, catamite, boys used for homosexual relations. So they've kind of skewed and hidden this in the King James, but if you look into some other different um, translations, it's basically this is what it's being pointed to here. And that's what, um, the, that's what a, also a temple prostitute it's called. But that's not the only thing, you know, that's not the only place. A lot of times the word eunuch is used. And so if you, if you look at the, the root word and the definition of a eunuch, it'll say um, those, that, those that either they either served um, the kings, they were councilmen, you know, it, they were today's politicians. For, for us, it would be today's politicians. Back then, they were, they served the king, right? And they were um, allowed to also, they mostly, supposedly took care of his concubines. But that wasn't the only thing. You know, people say, oh, well, of course they put eunuchs in charge of the concubines so he wouldn't try to sleep with them or whatever. But you don't want a man, a masculine, masculine manly man, anywhere close to your power. So they would, you know, they would, and plus there's probably a lot of homosexual stuff going on. That was the whole deal. So, um, like, like you kind of said in your in your in your paper there. So this goes all the way back. There it is. There is lots of stuff going on in scripture, but it's just been hidden from us. We don't see it there. We don't understand. That's what it's talking about. I'm trying to find this one video. Now, really quickly, you had because you quoted from First Corinthians six nine, and I put it in the uh, scripture bot in the room, and it says, my version says, neither those who whore nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. So I'm talking so, about the word effeminate. So yeah. you look at the different ways that that is translated and look at the, the actual definition, the Greek word that's, you know, translated in that way and just dig back into that and that's where you're going to find it. Now, before you move on, you had mentioned King Tut being uh, having the hips of a, of a woman, which is fascinating. How do you... Do you speculate that's part of why King Tut is so popular? Oh, probably. Yeah. I'm, think I'm thinking that's why the whole Egyptian thing is so popular. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, like I said, it was, it's been, you know, it's, it goes back to the whole Babylonian thing like you touched on. And um, I, I wish I could find that. that there's one video. And, and it it's just goes, it's the... It's it's a religion, and it goes back to this whole idea of, and, and so like Mike D was saying, it, it's um, anti, you know. So if if and it's counterfeit, 
It's so close to what the truth is, right? But it's a twisted truth. And that's, and so they run with that. And so that's also why I think a lot of people in, in, that live in that lifestyle, that are raised that way, they probably literally think they, they're living a truth. Oh, this is what the Bible says. Oh, this it says it right there. Oh, that makes sense. They're being taught a twisted version of this. So, you know, like, like, like a lot of religions, you know, you can soundbite just about anything out of scripture and make it say whatever you want, and people are going to, you know, think it's truth. Right. Good. That was some good stuff. So one, one of the first, it was really hard for me. I mean, there was some, like I said, like the Venus and Serena thing, those were obvious to me. Um, for a while, it was really hard for me, especially just, it's easy for me to see the male to females. And I can also see where fashion has always kind of been an excuse to disguise, right? You know, the 80s, we had the big hair and the big earrings and the big shoulder pads, right? Because you're hiding what? Shoulders and big head and big ears. Fashion is always kind of a, reason, a way to disguise it. Um, and it was hard for me to see. He came up with this one video, and when I watched it, because I was like, no way. He was saying every first lady was inverted and there's a couple that i thought you know we all we all most people if you've been thought about it at all and michelle obama right I, um brought calls from michelle or michael on various occasions is all on video so but you have to think about it and you're like wait a second so he literally goes back and he shows you a picture of every single one and if you just can look at it with, you're just looking at anatomy, looking at the energy sometimes. Sometimes it's just the energy that comes from the person. Um, I remember another time it really hit me, I'm just literally shopping for a dress or something on Kohl's. And so you're scrolling through the catalog and this is a way to kind of test your own reaction. So I'm scrolling through all these pictures of like girl clothes, women's clothes, and on first instinct, I'm like, those are men's bodies, right? Super lanky, straight shoulders, boxy, square. But, you know, if I click on it and I see, okay, long hair, lipstick, boobs, your mind talks you out of it. But if on your first instinct, many times, you, it, you can see it. You, it'll just jump. And now it just jumps right out at me. But um, so I had to kind of train myself to kind of see the opposite. It's harder to see. You, you can literally go and research people that are that are out and that are basically documenting their whole process and you can see a before and after um you know male to female or female to male and you'd be like flabbergasted like you would never know in a million years that that used to be a girl or that used to be a guy except for that they're showing you what they they're what they did to themselves and so it's 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 really shocking so for instance, I knew, I've always known millennia is a man. And to me, that's very obvious. Especially, that's the whole thing too. We've, we've been, we've been um, kind of duped into thinking the whole plastic surgery thing is just all about beauty. But it's not. It's about hiding the skeletal structure. And, and you know, people's faces, especially a man's face, will get more pronounced, right? The jaw, the nose, the ears, just it just gets more pronounced because they don't have that underlying layer of body fat there. So you'll see all these 
Hollywood quote-unquote women are stick figures. They don't have any fat on them at all. And all the men are big blobs. It's like, why? Because they're inverted. And so it was, like I said, so Melania was really easy for me to see, but Donald was harder. I knew there was a certain, certain little characteristics about Donald, but um, <laughs> Google the picture, Donald Trump playing tennis, and you, you'll, you'll never be able to unsee it. Um, there's something, just, you know, he's always been teased about his small hands, right? And then the very close together facial features, no jaw, no Adam's apple, you know, the big, gotta wear the big boxy suit all the time. They're always, they always put on that very stern face, you know, like, I gotta, I gotta look masculine, you know. And, and then you just start look, realizing, you look at all the Trumps, Ivana to me is very obviously, and did you know that Jared, okay, so Jared Kushner is Ivana's, Ivanka, which one is it? <laughs> which one's the daughter, Ivanka? Ivanka's husband, quote unquote, is Jared Kushner, and Jer it's been it's on record that Jared Kushner, voter registration, he is listed as a female. I had never heard that before. Yeah, I just saw it again recently. So Jared Kushner's um, voter registration has him listed as a female, and Ivanka wow. is clearly a man. And that's wow, the way it is. <laughs> wow. That, that, uh, <laughs> that's obviously, I mean, this is obviously a lot for some people to take in because it's one of those things that really just like strikes at people's emotions and their, um, insecurities about maybe ourselves or, um, other things like that. So the oh, opening sure. to your article, you lay out the, like I was saying, the modern day, which we go back to the. 40s, 50s, and 60s after, what could we say, World War II? And when Sinatra and all this, you know, we had stars. We had these more stars onto film, more exposure, entertainment to the, the masses once again. And what, what, in one way, this was all organized. This is what I'm trying to say. It's presented as almost, I don't want to say organic or natural. Like, oh, this just, yeah. Like to say um, the Playboy Mansion in What's-His-Face, um, who was running Hefner. it? Hefner on the front. Um, like yeah. you've written about, no, that's a complete CIA setup. A complete, we can go into other aspects of it that you've written um, quite clearly on. Um that this, what I'm trying to say is not, what I'm trying to say, this has all been organized and set up on a higher level. So like you're saying, the, women, the different women that were coming um, to the White House that were men, whether it was Monroe, Mansfield, Russell, um, that this is part of a higher, uh, a higher agenda. This wasn't just Hollywood and and Washington DC oh, yeah. stars and politicians. This was some higher other agenda. Well, um, I think it also serves their agenda um, of yeah. blackmail. You know, they catch people; they're doing things that they know is the the uh, the the public wouldn't approve. 
That's right, to keep them in, keep everyone in line, to keep anybody in line. That's yeah. whether you're uh, higher up in the club or not. So it's I, part of a... It's been this way, we could say, for 200 years, 250 years or so. I, def I definitely, and I can definitely contest the fact that, like, the Playboy Mansion was set up in such a way to blackmail people. You know, you get you get those underground tunnels going to Jack Nixon, Warren Beatty's house, whatever. You you usher some uh, dip, uh, diplomats, some kings down there. You you roll out some cocaine, a, a, a bear rug, put a couple of underage girls down there in a video camera. You film it. You got blackmail for for life. And I personally, when I think when I'm looking at uh, uh, Grizzlane Maxwell and... Um, uh, Jeffrey Epstein and that whole thing, you know, I th that that's all just a script, of course, that they're throwing out. There was an interesting, I, I've commented on this before, that there's there was an interesting changing of the guard when Hugh Hefner died, that all of a sudden Bill Cosby was apparently, you know, thrown under the bus, whether that's legitimate or not, I, I'm still unsure. And you got, you know, Jeffrey Epstein and all this kind of stuff. And it's almost like they're, 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 they're now telling us, the people, this is what we will do to you. We are recording, you know, it, it's, it's, a, it's like a morality tale of we are recording everything you look at, everything you do, you know, and we, you know, and we can hold you to the same standard. But I wanted to just quickly uh, reel this in because someone had asked, uh, what is, in a, in a nutshell, what does all of this mean? And uh, Lisa, you can give, you know, your, your thoughts on what it all means. Mike, throw in yourself, but my... My thought is, is that, you know, Satan hates humanity. He hates the fact that we are created in the image of the Most High, of Yah. Um, and I've pointed out, of course, to the prophecies that Adam would sit on uh, Satan's actual throne in paradise. Um, but Satan wants to conform humanity to his image and not the image of, the, of, of Elohim, of of really the, the son of the, the word, the son of the most high, Yahusha. Um, and so I think that's really what all of this is, is about. I had even hinted when we started that there is something else going around the world right now that is also, I believe, taking people out of that image, you know, changing people's DNA. But this is just, you know, an ongoing, um, this has been going on much longer than anyone really thought. So that's just... I just want to throw that in there, and Lisa, maybe you could throw in what you what you think you know the purpose of all this is. Well, yeah, and not only that. Um, number one, I think we need to care about it because people are being born into this against their will. It's child abuse. And number two, those that um, uh, that are just you know going ahead and living the agenda and somebody you know it's like maybe as soon as they try to speak out maybe that's when that's why people are eliminated at such young ages but the rest of them are all liars they're lying to us you know and it's just by their very being of who they're presenting themselves to be so it's just a matter of you know a test of our discernment you know understanding that this is the world we live in and yes, that um, they literally deem it as a religion, so it's um, an abomination to the Most High Elohim, of course. And they're pushing it. They're pushing it on our children. They're pushing the agenda, and they're doing it um, to us against our will, with 
the hormones in the food and the water and whatnot and this and that and the other thing. And uh, yeah, so this is, yeah, it's, it's crimes against humanity, uh, crimes against the children, ch child sacrifice, child abuse at the highest level. So people are like, oh, why should I care? Well, <laughs> that was a couple of reasons right there. I agree. And again, it's, I don't know why it's hard for some people to, to hear this or believe it well, because the, the, the enemy um, programs people like that to go, this is whether you want to, this is where you got to go. There is evil. And to recognize that evil, you got to realize well, who's the author of that evil. Mm. When you do, all of a sudden, it actually makes sense why it's so prevalent, why it was so widespread, why, as you two just um, beautifully, clearly stated, um, the agenda, the satanic agenda, it's against Yah's creation, his design, his family, and we see it playing out in our world, in this world. And they want us to accept it now at where we are today. I believe it's it's been going on so long that it's trickled down into, you know, into the far corners of, of everyday life. And so they want us to accept this now as normal. They want to be accepted. It's literally this whole, I wish I, if, if I find that video that Mr. E did, it was, it was, it was really mind-blowing about how it's, it's like this been creeping, creeping agenda this whole time that they've just been biding their time to get in power, and now they're there, right? And now they want to be, you know, they're, of course, taking over, the, you know, the whole, like you pointed out, the whole Baphomet goat god thing. You know, it hit me seeing that a million times, but not only is it androgynous, supposedly male and female, right, but it's animal and it's supposedly angel it's got wings it's got animal head and feet and it's got male and female it's a complete conglomeration it, oh it's just like oh my gosh wow yeah yeah that's a good i had never that's a good point i'd never really thought about that before but you're right it's male female human animal angel that's really good. So, does that touch on are there male and female angels? Because we've heard it many times that they're maybe sexless or um, don't have a gender. And this goes back to the, <laughs> I go, goes, it also goes forward to the trans um, humanist idea that, that we see playing out as we're talking about the transgender idea of sexless. Not just androgynous, sexless. Right, I would say it's, yeah, because that's what I believe angels aren't. They don't have gender, quote-unquote. They don't recreate, procreate. They don't, yeah. So they're, so yeah, if their goal is to try and move us in that direction, because that's their ideal, you know, the adversary's ideal, to be, he's trying to create something after, quote-unquote, his image, then that's that would make sense then, right? removing the whole literally just removing the gender altogether but first you've got to start with this whole 
mesh, melding it all into just into one in a sense.